Hey everyone, welcome back to the Secret Garden series on iHeartMovies. My name is Jonathan North, and in this episode, Sarah is back, and we're looking at the 1993 version of the story. This is the version that we both grew up with, and at least for me, is what got me into the story. There was another version that I remember seeing on PBS when I was really young, before I even knew what the story was, that really sucked me in. It totally hooked me, but that was years before I knew what I was watching. I literally had no idea what I was watching back then. All I remember was a mysterious wailing, a girl finding a mysterious sick kid in a bed, and a garden. It was enough to get me hooked, but when I didn't know what the title was, for years I didn't know what I'd even seen. And then years later, I watched the 1993 version, which made me realize what I must have been watching back then, and I've loved the story ever since. I still haven't found that mysterious PBS version, though. It could be the BBC version that I've heard about, but still haven't seen. Maybe one of these days when I'm making the series, I'll eventually rediscover that one. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Today, we're talking about the 1993 version starring Kate Maberly as Mary, and perhaps more notably for some, Maggie Smith as Mrs. Medlock. One bit of housekeeping before we get into this, because I'm sure some of you will notice. Yes, we realize that their last name is Craven. Sarah does accidentally say Crane a few times, but we catch it and correct it. I know how much people love to point out mistakes in the comments, though, so I figured I'd just get this out there before we even get into the episode. Okay, I think that's all for now. Let's get into the second episode of the Secret Garden series on iHeartMovies. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Secret Garden series. This week we're going to be talking about the one from 1993, which is one that we both grew up on, we both really liked a lot. So once we finished the one from 1949, we we felt like we needed a palate cleanser, so we got this one up yeah. right away. <laughs> it was too late at night, but I'm like, I just I want something besides this now. Yeah. I know what the secret garden can be like, and it can be like this movie. Yes. This is, well, I mean, we've only watched two so far, but this is by far the best, and I I can't really imagine that anyone is going to top this one. If it, if they do, I bet it would be BBC. It could be. But this is also a British film, so right on course that way. And this one is tied in with t childhood nostalgia for both of us, so that's why yeah. it holds such a high place in our minds. Yeah, so I'm pretty familiar with what the twists and turns are going to be. It's not necessarily creepy. This is actually a very suspenseful story, but at this point in my life, I'm so familiar with the plot line that it's not really that suspenseful. It's just nice. Mm -hmm. One of the differences between the 49 and the 93 version is that in the 49 version, her parents die of cholera. And in the 93 version, they die in an earthquake, mm -hmm. which is accurate to the book. Actually, the 1949 version, believe it or not, <laughs> it happens a little bit differently in the book, even from the 49 version. The, the, in the book, you really get so much insight into why she is the way she is and what has happened before she even gets to Mistlethwaite. I feel like they did a good job. It was, um, it's a very beautiful movie. Even mm -hmm. at the beginning in India, it's beautiful. You see her getting, you know, having help getting dressed. She's being put in these beautiful clothes. She realizes that her parents don't care for her. In the book, that's a yes and no. 
her father is described as being sickly sick and busy. She's described as being sickly. And then the mother's the total flake. Mm-hmm. And they're straightforward about how she didn't want a child and she passed off the child onto other people and wanted her kept out of her hair. And in this movie, they show very well how frivolous her mother is, but they make it look like the father is that way too and when that wasn't so much the case. Another thing, they, they change different things. When she first gets to England, that's when they're chanting the Mistress Mary Quite Contrary part, singing mm-hmm. it to her. That actually happened in India, India where she was staying with a pastor's family and being difficult. And then she was shipped off to England, but she went with somebody who was delivering their children to boarding school. In this movie, she's basically with a bunch of orphans who are giving her a hard time. And she is the last one left at the train station waiting for somebody to pick her up, which creates a very pitiful atmosphere. It's not accurate. The housekeeper was there in good order in the book, but it helps to make her pitiful in this movie. Mm-hmm. Also, Mrs. Medlock in this film is picking over how she looks right in front of her. In the book, she's exclaiming over how she isn't much to look at and everything, but she thinks that Mary can't hear her, which would hopefully, in most instances, be more true to life instead of just totally criticizing a child to their face who's just been orphaned and come over the ocean to live in a gloomy manor house. You know, but whatever. (laughs) Um, Once they finish at the station they take a carriage ride across the moors and that part always stuck out to me as a kid because of mrs medlock eating chicken (laughs) (laughs) and they do eat on the journey back i don't know whether that's i think it's partly by train and then by carriage and that's an interesting part of the book because mrs medlock is giving her some insight into the situation that she is going to be entering into and also eating in the book is she sharing the food with mary they they kind of have tea and okay. and food because it didn't really seem like she was giving mary anything in this movie in, it just seemed like she was just scarfing chicken in front of her yeah <laughs> and mrs medlock was different in the book than in this film which we can get to later, but... Mrs. Medlock in this one is played by Maggie Smith, and she does an amazing job. She is very good for what they handed her, which was not true to the book, but they made her a good character, yes. too. She's kind of the bad guy and the good guy at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's but, one of those things that they've changed from the book, but for the film, I don't mind the change. Sure, it's not a problem. I, there's a part where they're going through a village and she sees a shop with i think toys or food and i would like to see if there was a longer version them expand on some things in the book but for the time frame that they had this journey was fine the part where they're going over the dark stormy moor is is accurate 
in pretty quick off the bat. You have the mournful noises coming from the house. Which but they did a really good job making it seem questionable as to what the noises were. They did a good job blending it into the atmosphere. And Martha tries to tell her that it's, you know, the wind and that it sounds like somebody lost and wandering on the moor crying, which is accurate to the book. Martha is pretty cute in this version and seems like the right age. Yes. I think the with the way they talk about natives, I think they would have made it more acceptable to a 20th century audience because I think that there are certain biases or or prejudice or whatever you want to call it of the time period written into the book but yet at the same time I think there is this admission that they're all brothers but that part of it is downplayed a bit in this version Mm -hmm. which I don't know how much I want to ramble about that but I mean it wasn't mentioned a whole lot in the movie and it's mentioned more in the book Um, okay but I think it would be potentially offensive in certain parts. Mm, okay. The way they talked about natives, which you have to take it from a cultural standpoint of Christianized people and people who don't know these people. Mm-hmm. It's the whole, therefore, and they don't understand them, and they're from a different religion and You just everything. have to read the book with the knowledge of this was written in a different time. with. Different yeah, if you read the book, yeah, like you said, you have to try and understand the people and the time period on both sides Mm -hmm. and maybe take some of it worth a grain of salt. (laughs) In this version, you get a better progression of Mary improving in attitude. She looks healthy throughout the whole thing, so they didn't Mm -hmm. show her improvement in health that she would have had. And that's another thing where it doesn't quite make sense to say that she's not anything to look at other than the fact that she looks surly she's a beautiful little girl but they don't mention it nearly as much in this one as they did in the 49 one or in the book which works because they don't unless they're actually going to make her look sickly then they don't have Mm -hmm. that as much to go off of you do plainly see an improvement in appetite as she's out running and playing and getting fresh air so they do they do touch on it. Dickon in this version... Okay. The gardener, I think they picked a good person. Mm-hmm. And they have the robin. And the robin is an important part. It's not as big of a part as in the book. I don't care. They got the right bird. Proper English robin. And they have Ben Weatherstaff talking to him. Eventually, Dickon comes along. And Dickon is adorable. I love him in this movie. He's so sweet and he has his animals and everything and he's so British and <laughs> yes. And Colin looks properly sickly. Yeah. He's adorable and British, but he actually looks sickly. And in fact, they make him even more sickly than he actually was in the book. They really play it up. None of the children's coloring is accurate to the book. You get the impression that Colin is a dark-haired boy and that Mary is a blonde and Dickon is a redhead with a wide mouth and big round eyes and, you know, (laughs) 
and a turned up nose. What? But the guy that they, the boy that they chose for Dickon was adorable. So, and I think Mary, she had a really good, like she had really intense eyes. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I feel like they picked a good person for this, and Colin looks good and sickly. So, yeah, Mary was intense in the way that she needed to be, and yeah. To an extent, in the 49 one, too. Like, in both versions, I liked when she and Colin had their screaming matches. <laughs> like They did a really good job in that. Even in the 49 one, that's one of my favorite things about the 49 one, was their screaming matches. <laughs> they just, they were so good. In the book, they're kind of happy to have Mary take over. Like, there was a nurse and Mrs. Medlock. They were just, I don't know, they were... If you, if you put up with 10 years of a really difficult invalid, you're you're happy if there's some relief. And Mary helped to bring that. She was not going to put up with his temper, and she helped him to realize that he was not becoming a hunchback. <laughs> Which in the book, they didn't even realize a lot of his fits were him being afraid that he was becoming a hunchback and maybe even dying. And so he would work himself up into a screaming fit because he was so anxious. And they didn't even know. He hadn't told them. And so they're both ignorant and caught in this situation. And and she helps to enlighten him, which it's not explained as much in this version. But they in this version, they also have him like getting these different treatments, which he never had. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is important to explain is in the book, the doctor was his relative and would have stood to inherit everything if Colin died. Oh, okay. And so you go and and he feels like the doctor looks more cheerful when he is sicker. So that's another thing that Colin has to deal with. This That makes a whole lot of sense, especially in the context of the 1949 one. Because you felt like the doctor was purposely making him out to be far more sick than he was. But here's here's the catch. Because no, this is one of the nice things about this book. Nobody is a diehard villain in this book. So while he's had to deal with this squalling you know, invalid this whole time. And would have liked to inherit Mistlethwaite. Colin had also refused... To go out and get fresh air. There was another doctor, I think, that had come along and said, he needs fresh air. He needs, you know, this is ridiculous. I think Mm -hmm. he had had a back brace rather than leg braces. But Colin, he didn't like being stared at. He didn't like this. He didn't, you know, he he was very difficult. And there were different reasons for that. One of them being that he was just, because they were so concerned about his delicate health, they gave him his way Mm -hmm. all the time. So it created this whole bad loop of him hearing overhearing people say that he wasn't going to make it and they thought that he wasn't listening and having this doctor and his relationship with his father being messed up and everything and yeah also in the book he doesn't realize that his mother has had an accident in the garden and that that's what led to his premature birth and in fact in the book no one ever tells him Hmm. When they go to the garden and he sees the tree where she died, that caused her to die, they don't explain 
And Dickens says it's going to be, even though the tree is dead, that it's going to be covered over in roses. And they, because they are concerned that he get well and not become, I think because they're concerned that he get well and not be fixated on something sad that happened in this garden, because this garden is what they want Mm, to have heal him. That was the reason he was willing to go outside, was to go to that garden. Also in this movie, there's all this talk of him with fresh air getting spores and, and not being able to walk. In the book, they're concerned because they don't know if he can walk or not, but he says there's really nothing wrong with his legs. In this movie, he is supposedly can't walk. Which in well, I think it's more like he's been lying in bed so long that he just he's not strong enough to walk well. But he literally thinks that he's a cripple yeah. in this version. Where but in both cases he just needed to gain more strength. Mm-hmm. But he was not afraid of he was not afraid of spores in the book. <laughs> also, that part about the seaside and how Oh, I think in the 49 version, he might have said that he barked like a dog and scared off the lady that was there, there, poor thing over him. In the book, yeah, I think he might have actually bit her. (laughs) 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 Anyway. um, And in both films, his mother's picture on the wall is covered in a little curtain. In the 49 one, it just seems kind of odd. They don't really explain. But in this one... He says that she smiles too much. I think in the book they might explain even more. Basically, while he was down in his bed suffering, his mother was constantly up in the painting smiling at him. Which, if you think about it, if you were in pain and you were looking at a picture that was smiling at you, it might come off as kind of sick. So he had her covered up. Later on in the story, when he's better, he doesn't mind having it uncovered. And I don't know how much they touch on that. In this well, I think in the film. 49 one, what, wasn't there a line mentioning like the father didn't like looking at the picture anymore or something? But it was really Colin. Yeah. But yeah. I think the 49 one, it was the father was, I don't remember, upset don't about know. it or something. I don't know. Just another weird dimension to his character. Mm-hmm. Another thing that they never explain in this film, and that's actually very, it's kind of important... In this film, Mary's mother was the twin sister of Colin's mother who died. Mm -hmm. And so when Mr. Crane sees her, he's shocked at how much her eyes basically remind him of his deceased wife. Yeah. They muffed it. Which, you know, it's pretty dramatic in this film and it's fine. It works. But one of the big things in this story is that Mr. Crane was always visiting his son at night and not during the daytime. Well, why do you think that was? So he couldn't see him to remind him of his wife? Yes. But here's why. In the book, it was Mary's father who was the brother of Colin's mother. So there were no twin sisters. Mary did not look like the deceased wife. She reminded him of his wife when she had her meeting with him and wanted a bit of earth, which is actually, as an adult, reading that part of the story and realizing what's going on in his heart and mind is actually touching and 
it's it's yeah it's quite the book his wife had stunning eyes gray eyes with black fringed lashes Colin got those same eyes so after his wife died he had this sickly baby staring up at him with these great big gray eyes and these lashes so that's why he always visited him at night because it was so hard for him to look at you know like his wife in this child mm-hmm. whereas in this film you don't like you can kind of get like he's just avoiding his sickly child and looking at him at night but in the book it really explains why he would just mm-hmm. mainly look at him at night because he just couldn't stand to look into those eyes the eyes of his wife but in this sickly child's body like what a way to be reminded of the horrible thing that has happened yeah anyway that's a long ramble but it's important also i don't know why they gave mr crane long hair that's not the way the original <laughs> illustrations were. This book was from the early 1900s. Like in, in the original illustration, he has like short hair and a mustache, but he doesn't. He's not that humped over. Mm-hmm. In the book, he's not that. He's not that crooked either. Like he's described as having high, maybe crooked shoulders. He's not Quasimodo <laughs> by any stretch of, of the imagination. And Mary said that. Something like, he would have been handsome if he hadn't looked so sad or worried. Mm. So, really, it's a good-looking family. Now, is the name different in the book? Because you're calling him Mr. Crane. In the movie, it was Mr. Craven. And I don't remember if they ever said the name in the 49 one. Oh, I've probably been saying it wrong this whole podcast. (sighs) Is it Craven or Crane? Craven. Okay. I think Craven is right. Oh my goodness, how did I do that? I, I I noticed it a couple times and I wondered if I misheard you, but it's fine. If I leave this in, then people will know that <laughs> the <right> name. <laughs> they will know that Sarah has her C names mixed up. Um, his wife's name was Lilius, by the way. Lilius. Lilius. <laughs> okay, I've never because, heard that name before. Because in the dream, he's calling. See, I can at least get this part right. Hopefully. <laughs> only read the book three times whatever um i don't know if they ever actually mention her name in these i would have remembered a name like lilius and i don't know that they ever mention it in these movies and you would think that they would but when he's having the dream in the book he's calling lilius back to her Hmm. so i think she's calling him archie and you know yeah i remember archie yeah I think in the other version, I don't know how much they talked about magic. Did they? I don't think so. Which, fine. But oddly enough, I don't know, it comes off as kind of ecumenical. There, There's a lot of talk of magic. Like, there was magic back in India, and now Colin wants to harness magic to make himself well. Okay, book versus movie. In this movie... It's almost like he's trying to harness literal magic, like hopping around a fire, chanting, trying to harness magic, which, not a fan. In the book, the magic that he's trying to harness is basically the power of positive thinking that you would have today. Like, telling Mm, himself, the magic is in me, 
um, probably like I'm getting stronger, I'm going to be well, all of these different things. Okay. And doing that all the time, like instead of constantly thinking about I'm going to die, he was not only trying to help himself by physically moving, and in the book they actually take up exercises, like they do exercises every day that they're out in the garden and even end up doing it in the house too as well as gardening and moving around and all these different things. Mm -hmm. In this movie, it's like he uses magic to bring his, like, to call his father home once he's actually well. You know, after he gets out to the garden, he is actually, he is actually getting better with all of his positive thought and, and, you know, he, his appetite goes crazy. But the doctor, he was quite willing to let him go out and get well. It was Colin that was basically holding himself back. And he was actually concerned about, you know, who's this boy that's going to go and help you out in the garden. When he found out it was Dickon, he was fine with it. So in the end, he's not a terrible bad guy that's going to keep him pinned and not help him to get well. And Mrs. Medlock, in the movie, it's like she feels it's her duty to keep this invalid under wraps and just give him all these treatments and everything and like marries the bad guy whereas in the book mm-hmm. she's confused by different things but she's quite willing to let well that's better than the 49 version too then because in the 49 version you really got the feeling that this doctor wanted him to stay in the bed and that's just not the case so when it comes to the magic and calling the father home it really didn't happen with an incantation type thing. And in, in the, this movie, they make it quite mystical. In the book, it's still rather mystical, but it's almost like 19th century, or I guess early 20th century romanticism of this feeling. Dickens' mother believes that, she comes off as believing that even though Colin's mother has passed away, that she is still watching over Colin. Mm, okay. So when Colin has gotten well, and and even they even I think intimate that like that's why things are happening with the garden, like all of these things are working together mm. for good, and Dickens' mother believes that by any other name, basically that they're talking about God, you know this magic, mm-hmm. and and at some point in the book they sing the doxology and everything. Another thing that's cool is that in the book, while Mr. Craven is away, and oh my goodness, this part is so amazing. I, I just I, I just want to talk about the book for a second. Because in the book, it talks about not only how the inner workings, oh my goodness, like the last chapter. I almost have to read from it. Like the, you just gotta, oh, you gotta read this book. It's talking <laughs> about how where scientific st- discoveries are made, first it's impossible, and it ends up being like, we don't know why we didn't do this sooner. Mm-hmm. And then she's talking about the power of thought to affect health. And she, while well, she talks about how these good thoughts helped to make Colin well, in the meantime, his father had chosen to close off any goodness like he was going through all of these beautiful scenes in nature and not allowing himself to be touched by it and it's this really moving part of the book and at some point 
while Colin, I think, is working on getting well, he starts to be touched and comforted by the beauty in nature around him. Whereas he's been wandering for 10 years. At this point, he is just starting to open his heart a little bit. And he falls asleep, think on the grass in Italy. And he hears his wife calling him and saying that she's in the garden. Now this happens sort of in the 93 version Mm -hmm. but there's really this inner world that you're getting you know in the book you get this inner world you Mm -hmm. get everybody's inner world and and their inner workings and what was making them tick more than you do in in the movies and another reason to read it dickens mother had taken the liberty of writing and saying i think you should come home basically and so that, in combination with this dream that he's just had, it's like these different things. Okay. These different things are calling him back. So not this little magic ritual that they have in the ninety-three version, but really all of these things working together. Mm-hmm. And when he comes back, he finds out some of what's been going on from the confused <laughs> perspective of Mrs. Medlock. But the garden comes up. Like, she, she, he finds out that they keep going to the garden, and so his mind is looping back to this dream, you know, in the garden, in the garden. And so he goes there, and he's trying to find the door, and then he hears these little muffled voices, and then breaks out into, I think, maybe full laughter. And Colin is winning a race and is actually running out of the door, I think practically into his arms. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the 93 version... They're playing a game of blindfold where he's trying to mm-hmm. find, you know, either Mary or Dickon, and that works too. One of the things that I don't think was in the book was where Mary runs off and feels like she's saying it wasn't wanted, and, and I think she, maybe she doesn't feel wanted either. Yeah. But it's very sweet because Mr. Craven comes along and speaks comfort to her and Dickens off on his pony and then they go up to the house and everybody's shocked and Colin looks great and you know everything's happy I'm so upset that I said Mr. Crane this whole time <laughs> like how long is this video and they said Mr. Crane it's fine no it isn't Throwing, I have to throw it all out Just have another 45 <laughs> minute review of this movie no it's okay oh the music Oh, yes, the music. The music, that's one of the most memorable things about this one. It's one of my favorite things. I remember back when I was a kid, like, I was taught how to tape from a CD onto a cassette tape, because we still used cassette tapes back then, (laughs) which feels really ancient now, but I figured out how to hook the boombox into the TV, and I recorded music off of this movie, (laughs) because I love the music so much. It's so strange, like, how fast technology moves so all you have to do is be over 20 (laughs) practically or maybe over 25 to remember all this stuff that maybe somebody less than 10 years younger than you isn't necessarily even going to know what you're talking about or is going to think that that's ancient technology like yes i listened to cassette tapes and yes i used a walkman and 
yes, I listened to dial-up, and yes, I, I watched VHS. I feel like I have this memory of Beauty and the Beast coming with the little static coming across the screen. and <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, the music. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the music was amazing. Like, not all of the score is my favorite, but some of it, like, part of the score is just to fit with India. And then you get this other part of the score that has, you know, this really sweet violin and boys choir, and that's my favorite. Like, it's just, it's magical, and it fits with the magic of the garden, and I go around singing it on a fairly regular basis. <laughs> Probably helps that I just reread the book and watched the movie, but yeah, I love it. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it makes the garden even more touching as you're seeing. And one of, another thing that's great is that they used the technology of the time and showed the plants growing. Oh, yeah. The time lapse of the flowers blooming yes. and, and the coming roots. out of the ground. Even that the roots. too, yeah. I don't know how they got camera into the ground. So I feel like they captured the garden better on this one too with, with the roses in the book. The rose, one of the things that kept this garden special was that the roses had gone wild. So they only partly tamed the garden and added in more flowers. So there were roses clamoring, I think, over each other and on things and spaces that they wouldn't have in a more formal garden. But they just let it be a huge fountain of roses along with everything else. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you get a little bit more of that one in this version, which of course it's in England where roses seem like they're much happier than in my yard. <laughs> I'm trying, but yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> it just seems to be the the magical climate for roses there. Anyway. I guess that'll probably be all for this episode. Uh, we're planning to do a few more of these. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do next. I'm going to try and find the BBC version because we're really interested to see what that one looks like. I know there's like a weird animated version from the 90s that's probably along the same lines as those weird Alice in Wonderland. One of those things that they made and put in dollar stores, I think. Cheap animation. I don't know if Sarah's interested in that one, but I kind of just want to see what it looks like. If anyone ever did a magical anime of this, mm-hmm. please put it in the comments below. And I'm not talking about some nasty piece of trash with weird colors that totally does not understand the story. I'm talking about something beautiful. So mm-hmm. if- I'm thinking something like Miyazaki or Makoto Shinkai. Both of those directors, animators... They know how to do flowers and plants and natural scenes. It yeah. would be amazing. Maybe maybe I'm just sounding ordinary, but if you had watched what I have watched of animated versions of Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah, that one from be, the 70s. You'd be ready for it to look at something pretty. So yeah. not somebody who ruined the secret garden again. <laughs> somebody who, because who, I feel like anime would just be so fitting for this, like. With, with mm-hmm. the right person heading it up, that it would be beautiful. But anyway. Yeah. We'll be back with more versions. We just got to figure out which ones we want to watch next. They're out there. Yeah. So either way, we'll see you in the next episode with a new review.
Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Sarah for joining me for this episode of the Secret Garden series. We'll be back soon to talk about more versions. That animated version I mentioned will be first. My friend Mark Brown will be joining me to talk about that one. However, before we get to that, we are now two months into 2020, and I still haven't released any 2019 recaps. In fact, I haven't even recorded any until this weekend. So in the interest of not waiting until the middle of 2020, we're going to pause the Secret Garden series for a while so we can talk about some of the biggest and best films of last year. I know I'm not usually one to feel like I have to keep up with the trending topics, but I'd at least like to talk about the movies of 2019 before absolutely no one cares anymore. So to kick off our 2019 recap series, my friend Sol is joining me, and we'll be talking about the live-action remakes from Disney last year. Normally, they only do one or two of these films a year, not nearly enough to dedicate a whole podcast to, but last year, Disney released a whopping total of six live-action remakes of their animated films and one TV series. So Saul and I thought it would be fun to talk about them and rank them in order of our favorites. After that, Katie Fabric will be joining me to rank all the animated films we saw in 2019. And then finally, Eli Sands will be joining me to talk about our top 10 favorite films of 2019. We've got a lot of ground to cover in the next couple of weeks, so make sure to come back, and we'll see you next time on iHeartMovies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>